what the hell was that? I decided to speed up the opening theme tune. Why? Because it's what all the kids are doing on TikTok. And you should know that, Katie, as our resident TikTok expert. Love TikTok. Haven't come across this. What's the speeding up music to make it sound horrible? Any reason in particular? Well, whether it sounds horrible or not, that is a subjective opinion. (laughs) But um, apparently it's like a huge trend on TikTok and all the young people are doing these like dance things? Is that what people do on TikTok? Dance things. Dance moves to sped up songs. And there are all these Spotify playlists as well of um, sped up music. And it's becoming a real industry and artists are even releasing tracks at normal speed and then at sped up speed. I actually quite like it. I've been listening to some Spotify playlists that are sped up in the gym and I think I'm training way better. I hate it. So I guess I'm an old person. I actually found you a nice French one that's apparently popular at the moment. It's a French rapper called PLK. Have you heard of him? I think I actually have heard of PLK. Let's hear this. This sounds like places where my students hang out that would make me feel old and intimidated. It makes me want to shelter at home under a blanket. Oh, I find it really energizing. And that's why I wanted to play at the beginning of this podcast to get everyone all energized for what's coming up today. Woo! What is coming up? Um, Well, today we're going to be calling up... It's like totally inappropriate segue. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about European defence and foreign policy. Nicely done. Yeah, we're going to be calling up Sophia Besch, who's a specialist in this area, to find out a bit more about why it took so long for German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to agree to send those leopard tanks to Ukraine. It's been a huge story over the past few weeks. I imagine most people haven't missed it. But it's also one of those stories where I think the nuance can get lost in the headlines and the online campaigns to free the leopards. So we're going to be diving into some of the detail and some of the very specific German defense detail with Sophia later in the show. But for now, it's time for Good Week, Bad Week, which I hope you're going to speed up to. Who has had a good week, Katie? I am giving good week to the newly elected Czech president, Petr Pavel, who won himself a nice little landslide victory over the weekend against Andrei Babish. Uh, if you don't know who Babish is, he's someone that we've talked about a fair amount in the five years that we've been making this podcast. He's a populist billionaire tycoon who has loomed large over Czech politics in recent years. And he was often described as a kind of Czech Donald Trump in that he somehow managed to successfully paint himself as a man of the people who was fighting the elite, even though he was literally a billionaire. Um, He's also faced some quite serious criminal investigations like Donald Trump. Babish was prime minister of Czechia until 2021 when he got booted out. And he's been trying to make a comeback. So this election was being watched really closely over the weekend. Was Babish this anti-migrant, EU-bashing, populist billionaire going to return to power or not? But in the end, he lost pretty badly, didn't he? He did, yeah. Uh, So the first round of the election, a couple of weeks ago, was actually quite nail-biting. Petr Pavel only got a few tenths of a percent more than Babish. They were really neck and neck. But when it came to the runoff over the weekend, with just those two candidates in the running... Pavel managed to mop up loads of support from smaller candidates who dropped out of the race. 
And in the end, he got 58% of the vote compared to just under 42% for Babish, mm. which is actually the largest gap there's ever been in a Czech presidential election. Can you tell me a bit about who this Petr Pavel guy is? I haven't actually really read much about him other than some people think he's handsome. <laughs> That's a very inappropriate thing to mention, Dominic. Yeah, I need to stop objectifying my leaders. <laughs> I mean, yes, the internet does think that he's quite sexy. There are all of these tweets enthusiastically calling him a DILF. But you know what? I don't think we should dwell on that. We would not talk about a female politician in this demeaning way. So we're not going to do it for a male politician. Um, let's leave aside the question of whether or not he is sexy or not. Sorry, apologies. He cuts a really different figure to Babish. So Czech voters definitely got to choose between two very different visions of the world in this election. Pavel is a former army general and a former senior commander in NATO. He comes across as quite serious uh, he's very pro-West and he hates populism. He's previously described it as the problem of our time. And he ran on a platform of trying to make Czechia a less polarised country. Uh, he's very pro-EU. He wants the country to start using the euro as its currency. Mm. And he got a lot of support from young liberal voters because he supports gay marriage, which is currently illegal in Czechia. Uh, and he's been a very vocal supporter of Ukraine. So in general, I think he ran quite a positive campaign which put Babish in quite a tough position. Babish ended up running quite a fear-based campaign. He tried to paint Pavel as a warmongerer, and he pushed this really strong message of, like, I'm the guy who'll keep us out of a war with Russia. Babish even said at one point that if Poland got attacked by Russia, he wouldn't send Czech troops to help defend Poland, mm. which is a very weird thing to say because both the Czech Republic and Poland are in NATO. And that's the whole deal of NATO. You're supposed to defend each other if one of you gets attacked. Uh, Babish got pretty ridiculed for saying that. And he did try and walk it back afterwards. He was like, oh, I wasn't saying I'd go against our NATO obligations. I was just saying I, I didn't even want to imagine what World War III could look like, which wasn't very convincing. Um, but yeah, apart from that, Babish spent quite a lot of time trying to smear Pavel for having been a member of the Communist Party back in the day, which was a pretty poor line of attack because Babish himself was in the Communist Party and he was also an informant for the secret police during the Communist era. You're making him sound like quite like a progressive guy and I think people might listening might think he's left wing, but he's actually backed by the centre-right coalition, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, he was running as an independent candidate, though. Okay, the other thing I heard about him, other than him maybe being handsome or not, which we're apparently not allowed to talk about, um, was that the uh, campaign got a bit dirty and there were like rumours in the days running up to the election swirling around online that he died. Yes. And he had to deny them. Very weird. I mean, it's never great when you as a politician have to come out and announce that you are not, in fact, dead. So on the night before the election, someone, we don't know who, set up a website that looked almost identical to Pavel's website and it announced that he had died and it had this official looking obituary and everything. The link got sent to news outlets. It started spreading on social media. Pavel himself seemed to take it in his stride. Uh, he confirmed that he was not dead and his campaign put out a meme of him on a James Bond poster with 007, no time to die, written on it, which again <laughs> worked well because he's kind of dashing. We need to stop talking about whether or not he's handsome or not. Um, anyway, yeah, it was a pretty alarming little disinformation campaign. And the police were investigating who might have been behind it. Babish, for what it's worth, came out and said that he thought it was disgusting. And he expressed his solidarity with Pavel. So who knows who was behind it? 
So does Pavel take over like immediately? How does how does it work with the handover of power? No, he doesn't come in straight away. So the current president, Milos Zeman, his term ends in March and Pavel will take over after that. Zeman was a pretty controversial president. Up until the Russian invasion last February, Zeman was like vocally pro-Moscow. Mm. Pavel seems like someone who will try to cut a more unifying figure. Uh, but in terms of what actual powers he'll have, it is mostly a ceremonial role. Uh, the prime minister has most of the clouts in the Czech Republic. Although the president is in charge of like appointing prime ministers and he gets to appoint top people in the judiciary and the central bank. So it's mostly a ceremonial job, but it is an influential one. Uh, if you look at the first president after communism, Vaclav Havel, he became this national icon for leading Czechoslovakia out of communism without any bloodshed. And the presidents that have followed him have all tried to stretch the limits of the job in their own ways. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Pavel will want to do with the role. And uh, what's next for Babish? Or is there anything next for him? Is this the end? I'm not saying he should die. I'm just wondering <laughs> if his career is over. Good to clarify. I mean, that's the question. He is someone who has had a grip over Czech politics for years. But this defeat is pretty crushing. He's now lost three elections in a row. And this last one, it's really a very personal defeat. Uh, so even though he says he wants to lead his party into the next elections in 2025, he's not looking very strong right now. Having said that, he is fantastically rich. He's got a huge agriculture and chemicals conglomerate. He's got a media empire, which is always very helpful if you want to run for elections. He also seemed to be in a bit of a better position just before the elections because he got acquitted in this hugely controversial fraud trial that we've talked about before on the podcast. Uh, he'd been accused of fiddling with the ownership structure of this conference center that he'd bought so that he could fraudulently claim two million euros worth of small business grants from the EU. Oh, yeah. Yeah, astonishing case. Uh, that case has been dogging him four years. So the verdict clearing him was really good news for Babish. Although he is facing a separate investigation over alleged money laundering in France. Uh, but yeah, is this the end of Babish? I think probably not. Uh, he's quite a wily political operator and he's still an MP. So I don't think he'll stay that far away from the limelight. And, you know, when you zoom out and look at what this means for Europe, if anything, despite the temptation to look at this as a, a huge blow for populism in general, I mean, it's obviously not the end of populism, just like it isn't the end of Babish, right? Yes, the Czech Republic has just voted decisively against this populist billionaire. But if you look at where Europe is as a whole, who's in power in Italy, who's in power in Poland, I don't think we can really see this as part of an overall mood shift in Europe. Sorry to be a negative Nancy. Classic you. <laughs> Soz, who's had a bad week? It's been a bad week for relations between Ireland and Italy. The Italian government are very angry at a new piece of Irish legislation that would mean that all alcohol sold in Ireland would have to feature a health warning label in big red letters reminding people of some of the possible risks you are facing whilst drinking alcohol. So be that to your liver, to your unborn child if you're pregnant, or the many fatal cancers that are worsened by drinking alcohol. So Italy's hard-right coalition are not happy about it because of how this could affect their wine exports to Ireland. And this row has been bubbling away for a while now, but things really escalated last week when the Italian foreign minister, Antonio Tajani, 
went on a bit of a rant to journalists about this Irish law he so hates. He talked rather conspiratorially about this legislation as being a, quote, attack on the Mediterranean diet. He also warned people to be careful and not allow non-European diets to take over, diets that would, he said, damage European identity. Who knew that foreign food could be so threatening? Well, exactly. Um, Naomi O'Leary, a great journalist at the Irish Times and longtime friend of the pod, rather brilliantly described his speech as a sort of great replacement, in inverted commas, theory, but for <laughs> Italian food. They're coming for our mozzarella. We must defend. Well, yeah, and it's good you mentioned mozzarella because O'Leary points out that Italy's right has a long history of culture warring around food. And in fact, this alcohol labelling opposition is somewhat connected to Italy's opposition to the EU's Nutri-Score labelling system for food, which is, you know, that, those colourful A to E letters on lots of food. Oh, yeah. Telling you how healthy the food you're about to eat is. The Italian government hates that too, at least in part because of how badly it rates some of the most beloved foods of Italy, like mozzarella and parmesan, because they're so fatty. It's bad of me to agree with Italy's far-right government on this, but you know, mozzarella might come up badly on those labels, but it's good for the soul, and you can't measure that. Yeah, but what I want to say to Antonio Tajani is, like, chill out. No Nutri-Score labelling will ever stop me loving mozzarella. Very true. Even if I know it's clogging up my arteries. And what's funny about this is, at least in the case of alcohol, Tajani seems to be trying to convince us all that wine, or at least red wine, is in fact very healthy. He was happily preaching about the supposed health benefits of a glass or two of vino rosso and placing strong doubt on any claims that red wine could possibly also do you any bad. What is the conclusion of the research on all of this? Because you know, I've also seen those headlines saying a glass of red wine could actually be good for you. And I have taken this information to heart in the past. Well, I've read some summaries of the latest research and it seems that these so-called cardioprotective benefits that your heart could potentially get from a glass of red wine are being brought into doubt Aww. by the latest research. And... The bulk of the research suggests that drinking any alcohol, even red wine, and even at moderate levels, is bad for your health. Damn it! Stepping out of Europe for a second, maybe you saw those headlines from about a month ago about the Canadian government's team of scientific advisors revealing new, rather confronting advice for what a healthy consumption of alcohol looks like. Yeah, it was really not very much at all per week, wasn't it? Yeah, the official Canadian advice used to be that you could drink 10 drinks per week and that would be low risk. And now, with all the new research, they're saying that should be two drinks a week maximum if you want to keep your risk low. Mm. I found that quite confronting personally, not that I drink that much, but I drink more than two drinks a week usually. And uh, I found some of the stats that were shared around that announcement quite shocking. Things like the risk of head and neck cancers increased by 15% with just three drinks per week. And the risk of breast cancer increases for women by 8 to 10% with every additional drink 
per day. Jeez. But I do wonder whether all this news has helped persuade more people to take part in Dry January, which has just finished. I know a lot of people around me are doing it this year. And actually here in the Netherlands, it was announced this week that there have been more sales of non-alcoholic wines and beers and spirits this January than ever before. So maybe more people are realizing, even without the labeling, that maybe we shouldn't drink quite so much alcohol. Yeah, it's been really interesting in the French supermarkets seeing just how many non-alcoholic options there are now in the booze aisle. And this is a country that obviously feels about wine pretty similarly to Italy. Um, but having heard those grim statistics that you just told me, it does sound, much as I hate to say it, that there is maybe a case for these Irish labels. Yeah, there is definitely a case, I think. And I think it's good to rebut some of the Italian specific criticism. Um, it's been framed online by some people on Twitter that this is like anti-Italian wine, but actually it's for all alcohol. Though I saw some tweets with people saying they'd never put a label on a can of Guinness, but that's exactly what this law would mean. Guinness would also have to do it. Mm. It wouldn't, interestingly, however, need to be on cans of Guinness that were exported to other countries. So you could go and get a Guinness in France without thinking about the health concerns. Oh, I see. So this is just for consumers who are boozing it up within Ireland. Absolutely. And aside from the Italian criticism, there has been quite some disquiet about the labelling plan from the alcohol industry itself, as you might expect. Industry lobby groups complain that the Irish plan doesn't differentiate between moderate and excessive drinking, although, as I just said, even moderate drinking isn't good for you. On the other hand, what is good for you? Well, exactly. We can't have toast anymore. I know, but I do think it's good to be reminded, you know, sometimes. I thought I was being the negative one around here. You just made me feel <laughs> a lot better about the ending of my good week. But um, one other point of criticism about this Irish labelling that I read in Politico from the lobby group Brewers of Europe was that the requirement for these labels, quote, represent a significant, unjustified and disproportionate barrier to the free movement of goods. And yeah, that was something I hadn't really thought about, that alcohol exporters would have to find a way to make sure that all the booze sold in Ireland has like the Irish specific labels on it, mm. or retailers would have to find a way to do that once the booze arrives in the country, which is Sometimes quite complicated because like lots of beer is in boxes. So you'd have to open up those boxes and put a sticker on all the bottles. Ugh, the practicalities do sound rather complicated. But yeah, that's not the main criticism that the Italian government seemed to have. They seem to be enjoying this kind of culture warry response to the labelling. But it wasn't only Italy who were objecting to this law. There were seven other wine producing countries in Europe, including Spain, who protested to the EU about this proposed health warning. The European Commission had six months to announce an objection to the policy. Those six months are now up and they didn't do that. So that means the labelling can go ahead. Sucks to be you, Tajani. It does. He can comfort himself with a nice plate of mozzarella. Yeah, and to be honest, I don't think it's going to crush the Italian wine industry. Ireland's quite a small country. But I do wonder whether part of it is that they are worried that this is setting off a precedent and other European countries will copy it. Because that's actually what happened with smoking bans. Ireland really spearheaded that move back in 2004 when they became the first EU country to ban smoking in the workplace and in bars and restaurants. Mm. And yeah, as we all know, many other countries followed. But to be honest, I also have this kind of cynical side of me that thinks the Italian politicians these right-wing populists are talking about it because 
it's an easy fight to pick and resonates with their political base and it looks good to be seen to be defending Italian products abroad and maybe that's the kind of cynical read. I mean, if there's one thing that we've learned from making this podcast, it's that politicians love picking easy fights that distract voters from things that actually matter. They do. Although, interestingly, if anything, this policy is stepping on the toes of the EU's own plans. There's actually an EU-wide health labelling initiative for alcohol in the works. That is part of the European Commission's cancer-beating plan. And that should be announced by the end of this year. But we'll see what comes of that, because obviously, with all things European Commission, they have to get the agreement of all the countries involved. When can I actually expect to see a label on my drink if I go... On holiday to Ireland? It's going to be a while. The precise details are still being ironed out by the health minister in Ireland and the attorney general. And once the final plans are announced, the booze industry will be given another three years to prepare for the change before they are forced to do it. Mm. So in the meantime, we can all pretend we don't know about the risks of booze and keep slowly drinking ourselves to death. We have some lovely new people to thank for keeping this podcast alive. Big thanks this week go to Rebecca Bratu, Vasiliki Sodja, and Alana O'Hagan for signing up to send a little bit of cash our way each month so that we can pay ourselves and our producers and keep Europe in your ears. Yes, thank you so much. We are an independent podcast. We're not backed by any big media outlets, which is, uh, don't feel sorry for us about that. It's also nice that we have that independence, um, but it is quite difficult financially. Um, so do feel sorry for us. Do feel sorry for us. And if you do, then please head to our website, europeanspodcast.com and click on the support us button where you can either give off a one-off donation or find the link to Patreon where you can become part of this magical reward system where you might even get a voicemail, personalized voicemail from us if you donate from five euros each month. Let's talk about tanks. Uh, There's been quite a lot going on recently in terms of discussions over the weapon supply to Ukraine, namely the fact that the Ukrainian government has been desperately calling on its Western allies to send tanks. Putin is widely expected to launch a new offensive on Ukraine as we move into the spring. And Ukraine says that tanks will be crucial for taking back territories that have been seized by Russian troops. So they want tanks. Ukraine has plenty of rich friends in the EU and the US and elsewhere. Surely these friendly countries should just give them the tanks, right? Well, it's ended up being quite a drawn-out and painful conversation. Last week, both Germany and the US announced that they would be sending tanks to Ukraine, although they won't be sending the fighter jets that Ukraine has also asked for. Ukraine is particularly interested in the Leopard 2 tanks made by Germany. They're some of the most advanced battle tanks in the world. They're really good at tracking moving targets, for one thing. But this decision last week to send German Leopards, as well as American M1 tanks, this decision followed weeks of dithering over this issue, weeks of worrying whether it was a good idea or not, whether it would provoke Russia in some way into being even more brutal than it was planning already. Now, leaving aside the US for a minute, Germany's case is really interesting. It is the richest country in the EU. It is the economic leader of this continent. And it should be said that Germany has given a lot of military aid to Ukraine. It's one of the top donor countries. But when it comes to its role in Europe, in terms of guaranteeing our security, Germany may be extremely rich, 
but it's very, very reluctant to lead in terms of taking on an active military role in Europe. Why is that? Well, this week we wanted to spend some time digging into that psychology and where it comes from. And we have the perfect guest to help us do that. Sophia Besch, Europe Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment. She's a specialist in German politics and European defence. And she joined us from Washington, D.C. I wondered if we could start by asking you for a bit of background to help us get our heads around Germany's thinking on Ukraine. Germans came out of World War II very haunted by what their government had done under the Nazis. How did that experience shape Germany's thinking in the decades after the war about what Germany felt its military role should be? Yeah, it shaped Germany's thinking significantly. So Germany's strategic culture, which was built throughout the rearmament after the Cold War, happened really firmly embedded in NATO. And the thinking of never going it alone, I think, is the main lessons that Germans took from the war as they were facing this daunting task of rearming, but rearming in a way that would break with their history. So never going it alone, the two pillars of uh, acting in NATO and acting in the EU were sort of the main tenets of German strategic culture after the World War. And a strategic culture of restraint, you know, is I think how our allies would have perceived that. Something you hear a lot in that context is this idea of Germany as a reluctant hegemon, building up its economic power, its political power in Europe, but not really its military power to the same extent that we've ended up with an economic giant and a military dwarf. And so Olaf Scholz has seemed to a lot of the rest of the world to be a bit slow to act over uh, the situation at the moment. I think partly that's because he's balancing quite tricky domestic politics. His governing coalition includes quite a lot of pacifists. I was wondering to what extent this pacifism is shared by German voters themselves. How have they felt about the idea of Germany sending tanks and other weapons to Ukraine? I mean, the idea of pacifism is a pretty contested one. What I would describe this is reluctance to consider military power still relevant to international politics. I think that's what many Germans, including in the government, felt before the breaking out of this war, that at least in Europe, on the European continent, we had moved past that. And it was now all about economic interdependencies and trade and geoeconomic power rather than military power. You ask about public opinion, and I'm always a bit hesitant to make pronouncements about public opinion, because yes, we have the polls, but the polls change all the time. And the polls respond, I think, to what leaders are saying and the arguments that political leaders are making. So for a long time, over the past few months, you had polls that were pretty much split over the question, for instance, of sending tanks to Ukraine. It was pretty much a 50-50 split. And now that the chancellor has come out and explained that this doesn't actually mean that Germany becomes a party of the war and it doesn't necessarily escalate the conflict and alleviated some of these concerns. There's now support for sending tanks. In general, I think after the outbreak of the war, the chancellor gave this really important speech, the Zeitenwende speech, and we've made everyone learn this German word now, which basically means a sea change, a changing of the times. And right after he gave that speech, the public support was really outstanding. I mean, but considering that he had just announced 
breaking with German defense policy tenants and breaking of lots of perceived taboos that were there, support was really there. And I think if I can generalize this way, public support has been pretty strong throughout the last year in favor of supporting Ukraine. But to what extent do you think Germany's neighbors understand how big a deal it is for this attitude to change in Germany? And to what extent they're just getting frustrated by the, the slowness of the reaction? There is definitely frustration among Germany's neighbors. Part of that is at the pace at which Berlin is making decisions. I think part of that is also just resentment over Germany's past policies and that it has taken Berlin so long to catch up with what some of its allies had been telling us for years. You know, this idea that Scholz and Annalena Baerbock, the way that they put it in February last year was that the world has changed. That's why our politics have to change. And arguably, the world hadn't changed. <laughs> the world had been like this for a while, and others had been saying that for a while. And I think there's some resentment, particularly in, among Germany's Central Eastern European and Northern European neighbors at that. There's also, I think, when you speak to people, lots of understanding of the complexities of this debate. And, you know, when you look at the actual results of how much support Germany is providing to Ukraine, there's not a lot of complaints there. Germany is one of the largest contributors of military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. It's taken in lots of Ukrainian refugees, and I think there's appreciation for that. But, you know, I think the question is, what is the bar that you apply to this, right? If your bar is pre-Russian invasion of Ukraine, then Germany has done a lot and we can feel very optimistic about Zeitenwende. But if the bar that you apply is the security situation in Europe has changed fundamentally, European countries need to step up their defense and security, then I think you'll be disappointed if you look at what Berlin has done. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you a bit more about that last point. I mean, to what extent do you think these tanks that are being offered are going to actually make any difference to the situation? Is enough being offered here? This has been a big question of the past few weeks. And I think what we can say is that they will definitely make a difference. It's something that the Ukrainian armed forces have asked for for a long time. They're hoping that it's going to both help them prepare their own spring offensive and also help defend against the Russian spring offensive that we're expecting. It's not going to end this war. You know, it's not that decisive of a military contribution. It also comes with a long string of complexities when it comes to logistics and maintaining these tanks and learning how to operate them. So it's not like you can drop these tanks in the middle of the battlefield and then the war will be decided. But of course, it makes a difference. I think what we should maybe take from the conversation over tanks or what I'm taking from it is that we're now entering a phase where we're no longer trying so much to predict the outcome of the war and set red lines and say, this is what we'll do and this is going to change the course of the war one way or the other, but more so responding to the actual developments of the battlefield and sort of saying this might be a long-term war. So what are Ukrainian armed forces going to need? Let's listen to them and then let's see if we can provide that. And they're saying at the moment that what they're going to need is fighter jets next. Do you think there's any chance that Germany will consider this seriously? I do think they'll consider it seriously. Um, I don't know where the conversation is going to end up on that. I can't predict the future. But I do think with all the frustration over 
the dithering of Berlin or the reluctance to act without the United States, they are taking this war very seriously. They are taking their commitment to Ukraine seriously. So I think there'll definitely be a conversation about that. So you've mentioned this word Zeitenwende, which for us non-German speakers has been a, a new term that we've learned in recent weeks and months. Another German expression that a lot of us has learned has been Wandel durch Handel, this other big idea that's motivated German foreign policy over the past <laughs> few decades, change through trade, this idea that the more you trade with problematic governments like Russia and China, the more likely they'll be to democratize and behave well which is part of the story, I guess, of how Germany got so incredibly reliant on Russian energy. To what extent do you think this economic interdependence with Russia is a factor that has contributed to this German reluctance and slowness when it comes to actively contributing to Ukraine's war effort against Putin? The economic dependence on Russia, particularly when it comes to energy, there's a question of what comes first here, right? So you could, of course, argue that because of the economic dependence on Russia, Germany has been reluctant to be more hawkish, particularly after the 2014 invasion, which to me, I think, this to me is the sort of inflection point where I start putting blame at the feet of the German government, which was then led by Angela Merkel. This idea that we still try to reach out to Putin's Russia in the same way that we didn't, you know, try to um, become more independent from Russia. I think that would have been the moment to start doing that. But one response that you would hear to this in Berlin is that, you know, the idea is that through economic interdependence, we are going to make sure that Russia doesn't attack us, right? So there's a question of here, what's the chicken, what's the egg? Is it a feature or is it a bug, this idea of economic dependence? Now, when we look at this war, I think it's really important to say that Germany has, over the course of the last year, become independent from Russian energy on oil and on gas. I don't think that dependence on Russia is shaping the German response to Ukraine right now. I think that it has been a big feature of Germany's Russia policy for decades. But at this point, I think there has been a real wake-up call. And you can hear that if you look at the domestic discourse in Germany, the discourse in the Social Democratic Party, you know, there's a real reckoning with the mistakes of the past. And there's a real sense of not wanting to go down that route again. Olaf Scholz, the current chancellor, he was always going to have big shoes to fill leading Germany after Angela Merkel, a woman who many people came to see as the kind of de facto leader of Europe. Do you think Schultz is even interested as being seen as the leader of Europe? Oh, what a great question, because I think it's something that is really occupying many people in Berlin is this idea of what is leadership, right? It's something that Germany's allies will say often that they want more leadership from Germany. The US is saying it, you know, even countries like Poland at times have said that they fear German in action more than they fear German leadership. But I think there's real questions in Berlin about what does that actually mean? Structurally, from its position that Germany has in Europe politically and economically as the largest economy, it is de facto a leader, right? The question is, does this extend to military and security policy? And does that fit with Germany's idea of itself, with Germany's own identity? I think it's something that Germans are figuring out right now what that means. If you look at polls, um, actually, there's not a lot of domestic support for the city of Germany being a military leader in Europe. And honestly, I think that that's fair 
I don't think that Germany growing up necessarily means that we have to become like the UK or become like France in terms of our military policy. What I do think it means is that we have to live up to the commitments and the pledges that we've made in NATO and in the EU, which we haven't done for years, and that we can't actually block others from leading or from contributing the way that they want to contribute. And that was why this conversation over tanks was so particularly sensitive because it was linked to this idea of Germany potentially blocking the re-export of other countries sending their tanks to Ukraine. And then maybe one last thought on leadership is the role of the US in this, right? Because basically what we've learned over the past few weeks and months is this idea of not wanting to go it alone basically means not wanting to go it without the United States for Berlin. And, you know, that I think has implications for how we think and talk about the idea of European sovereignty, European autonomy and European leadership in terms of the transatlantic burden sharing and in terms of taking responsibility for the security of our own continent. Katie asked a very interesting question, which is probably where we should have ended this interview. But I have one rather idiotic question to close off this interview. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Someone said to me the other day that uh, being defense minister of Germany is a bit like being a teacher of defense against the dark arts at Hogwarts, where uh, you can't hold on to the job for very long. There's, I don't know, for people who haven't read the books, the Harry Potter books, it's a position where there's a curse and nobody stays in the position for more than a year. This is fantastic. This is a true millennial podcast. I completely (laughs) understood that reference. (laughs) Good. I'm so glad. Um, It's not been quite that bad with the uh, defense minister job. It's not been yearly turnover, but there has been a lot of turnover recently since Ursula von der Leyen left the job in 2019. How do you think Boris Pistorius uh, is doing so far in his first few weeks? And do you think he's going to break the curse and stay longer than two years? I don't know. I mean, when you speak with older generations about this who might not have read Harry Potter, the way that you would talk about this post is that it's the ejection seat of German politics, right? It's really a bit of a career killer. It's so difficult. I mean, decades of underinvestment. We've had decades of very little public acceptance of this position. It's politically a really, really difficult position. How do I think Pistorius will do? I think so far I've been impressed. He's been very measured, but very aware of the huge challenges that he faces in this position. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that it will go better for him than it went for previous ministers, just because this is such a crucial time of implementation and the defense ministry plays such an important role. Thank you so much to Sophia for joining us. You will find a link to her excellent Twitter account in the show notes. Uh, tanks might not be the funnest of subjects, but if you're in need of a little light relief, and if you haven't seen them already, uh, we can definitely recommend checking out some of the memes that have emerged under the hashtag Free the Leopards. People have been posting some very fun things from Ukraine and beyond. The Ukrainian government, you might have seen, uh, ran a social media campaign during this whole tanks debate, encouraging people to wear leopard print. And there was even a bakery in Kiev selling some very tasty looking leopard print cakes. Uh, So yeah, I think it's heartening, I guess, to see Ukrainians managing to find something to joke about in the midst of everything that they're going through. They seem to be so good at that. They are amazing at that. 
what have you been enjoying this week? Uh, this week I enjoyed watching Belgium's greatest living pop star, Stromae, in his recent Tiny Desk concert on YouTube. I know you've talked about Stromae before, Katie. You like him, don't you? I do. And me and Wojciech have also both seen this video. Oh, really? Did you like it? I really liked it. Um, and I think this short concert around the tiny little desk in the NPR office is a really good introduction to him if you don't know his work. He's just the coolest person and an amazing communicator and performer. And he's also backed by some singers from a Bulgarian choir called Yasna Voices. I was enjoying seeing these North Americans in the NPR office get a bit of pan-European musical pep. So go and watch it. Loved the Bulgarian choir that he had as his backing. Found one of his other backing musicians. Very distracting. Oh. Which maybe I shouldn't mention because now it will ruin uh, the watching experience of whoever actually clicks on this link now. Sorry. I need to go and watch it again. Yeah. What have you been enjoying, Katie? I have been getting stuck into a Hungarian novel that I've been meaning to read for ages, which is The Door by Magda Sabo. And I wanted to thank listener Yulia Karpova for reminding me that I've been wanting to read it. Uh, she's currently reading it in the original Hungarian while also taking Danish classes, which I'm pretty sure would break my brain. Well done, Yulia. Uh, I'm just reading it in English, but I am really enjoying it. Uh, it's about a writer's relationship with her very mysterious housekeeper. And without giving too much away, the intro is very gripping and it just kind of sucks you in and makes you want to finish it. Uh, this book has also made me want to get a literary translator on the show as a guest because I just think it's such an amazing, difficult job to translate a story into a different language in a way that feels authentic and just as enjoyable as it was in the original. Um, but that's for another week. For now, I am very much enjoying The Door by Magda Sabo. Happy news this week from Liverpool, the city that will be seeing the Eurovision Song Contest this year. I'm very excited about that. In the northwest of England, actually the place where we recorded the first ever episode of this show over five years ago. Am I right? That's right. And as you may remember, Katie, Liverpool has a great big river running through it. Do you remember what it's called? Oh, I'm so bad at English geography. I'm better at French geography because I had to do it for my citizenship exam. I was going to say the Tyne, but that's Newcastle. Mersey, the Mersey. Yes, well done. Yay. Proud of you. Phew. And the river was not so long ago in a pretty awful state. In the 70s and 80s, it was considered biologically dead due to pollution from industry and sewage. But there's been a lot of investment in improving the water quality of the river and particularly in improving wastewater treatment management. So people were watching very carefully to see the results of the latest report from the Mersey Rivers Trust, the first such report since 2002. And it contained great news, a huge increase in the types of water animals that are living in the river. Aww. Back in 2002, only 15 species of fish were found. This time, 37 species were identified. And the Trust described it as the best environmental good news story in Europe. They found sea scorpions, eels, and even sharks. Wow. Is that good? Yes. Okay, good. Happy for you, sharks. We need scary predators too. In Liverpool? Even in Liverpool. 
that is it for this week. If you miss us between episodes, head on over to Instagram at Europeans Podcast, where Dominic has been posting videos of Swedish cow singing. What is cow singing? It's like a traditional way of herding cows, I think. But it's quite beautiful. I thought it was beautiful too and very sort of bewitching. You can also find us on Twitter at Europeans Pod. The show was produced this week by me and Wojciech Alexiak and our other producer is Kat Sleslo. We'll be back next Thursday as usual. Have a good week, everyone. Auf Wiedersehen. Bye.